0: The following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I wonder if you've ever waited so long for something that you felt that that thing would never come. Maybe it was New Year's, we've just passed New Year's, and maybe you felt that 2021 was never going to end. Uh, Maybe for students, uh, like in my case, it may be the end of a semester or even the beginning of a new semester. Uh, For teachers, the same thing. Maybe for families, you've waited even years to go on a family vacation. Uh, For husbands and wives, maybe waiting to have dinner out. And you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and it just never seems to come. Maybe for those who are single, waiting for a spouse, a wife, a husband. And while God does not promise us all these things specifically, He does promise us that He will never leave us, that He will never forsake us. He promises us that His kingdom will never end, and that He does good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. New Year's will come and go. A family vacation, many of us feel it's over before it's even begun. Uh, We think about even the love of a spouse that will wax and it will wane. And we're always looking for that thing or that person that will always remain faithful. That when we wait for this thing or this person, that it will fully satisfy. It will fully meet all of our needs. And often we... As in the case of Habakkuk, as he's looking out at the Chaldeans, at other nations, we too can begin to have these idols in our own heart, to begin to think that these things will satisfy. And in fact, Habakkuk reminds us here, God reminds us through Habakkuk that he is the only satisfying one. That he is the only faithful one. That as we are called to wait on him, he will not disappoint us. He will not leave us or abandon us. But he will ever be with us to the end. And in fact, in the text, God is drawing Habakkuk's eyes. I think we can see clearly. He's drawing Habakkuk's eyes upward, away from the immediate, uh, the immediate um, enemy, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And he's reminding Habakkuk, just as he's reminding us this evening, that we are called to wait on him expectantly, and we are called to wait on him faithfully, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of trial. And so those will be the two divisions of our text this morning. To wait expectantly, verses 1 through 3, and to wait faithfully, verse 4. And so you'll notice in our text that uh, Habakkuk here, in the beginning of chapter 2, has come to the end of these, really, these two questions that he's asked God. And the first comes there, we read it in the beginning of chapter 1. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear, even cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me, there strife and contention arises. Habakkuk is struggling with the realities of evil, the realities of sin around him. And he's saying, but how can you stand the sight of evil? How can you tolerate it? And he even asks that same question as he develops it more in uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Notice how this is grounded in the character of God, his question. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Why? O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. So all these questions that Habakkuk is asking are grounded in the character of God. And I think as we consider this evening the call to wait on the Lord, to wait expectantly and to wait faithfully, we need to remember that the waiting is always grounded in the character of God, not in our faith, not in our perseverance, but in His character, in His faithfulness. And so what does Habakkuk say then in the beginning of chapter 2? I will stand my watch, I'll set myself on the rampart and watch to see what He will say to me. And what I will answer when I am corrected. Now, it's interesting here that Habakkuk then is called, as we are called, to wait expectantly in three particular ways. One, by first cherishing the answer of God. you notice he starts there. He cherishes God's answer. And it's not simply, he doesn't simply say, okay, prove to me who you are. No, he's already demonstrated in his questions that he knows who God is. And he sat under God's law. He sat under the teaching of, uh, of even God's word, being reminded that God is faithful, that God is a God of justice. He cannot stand the sight of evil. And Habakkuk, though, even as we may, he has these questions. How can, how can you be holy and yet stand the sight of evil? And so God then gives his answer in this text that we have before us. Verses 2 and really through the, uh, almost the end of chapter 3, God continues this answer. And you'll notice that his answer is essentially what comes there at the end of 3, or the middle of 3. Wait on me. Wait on my timing. And then Habakkuk will read this later, but Habakkuk will resolve... And some of the most beautiful words I think you could say in the Bible in chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, or to 19. He says, I will wait for you. And so this response then, back and forth, I think reminds us, first, as we look at verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand my watch, I will set myself on the rampart, that God responds to you. God responds to us When we cry out to him in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of anguish. You think about what is it that Habakkuk is experiencing here? There's a Babylonian army, or as your translation says, a Chaldean army on the rise. And Habakkuk is written at this point of transition between the Assyrian Empire's decline and the Babylonian Empire's uh, ascension to power. And Habakkuk is seeing this rise of the Babylonians, and he's saying, how, O God, can you use this evil empire to bring your holy people captive? And Habakkuk knows, of course, all the background to this, all the covenant breaking of God's people. He knows the sin that they have committed over and over. But his question is simply, how can you, O God, who are holy, how can you, O God, who are perfect and wise and just, How can you stand the sight of evil? So as we consider even that tension there, as God looks down on the Babylonian empire, I think we're reminded that he looks down on us. That we are in in many ways no better than they. That we who are Gentiles, who are not a people, have have become a people. That we were in many ways just like the Babylonians. And yet he used His Spirit to work in us. And I'm not saying, of course, the Babylonians were saved, but simply to say that God used them, that God uses even sinful people in His plan, that God uses even sinful people to bring about His holy ends. And so when you pray, when we are uh, coming before the throne of grace, be emboldened, be reminded that God answers his people when they pray, even as he answers Habakkuk here. In verse 2, the Lord answered me, and he said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Do you know, do you gain confidence as God's child? If you are a believer today, does that... Does that embolden you to approach the throne of grace with confidence as a child to a father? To to be sure that God will answer you when you cry out to him. Is it enough that God has spoken? Is it enough in the midst of waiting? In the midst of not understanding exactly how things are going to end up? Not not understanding exactly how God is using even uh, those who are around you to bring about his holy ends? Is it enough That he has spoken. Is it enough that he answers you? Even if you don't see his promises, the promise of deliverance, the promise of freedom from captivity, immediately fulfilled. And so we begin by cherishing first the answer of God, confident, expectant that he will answer us. And that emboldens us when we pray. It emboldens us to come before the throne of grace as sons and daughters. But it also, we also are called to wait expectantly then by recounting the promises of God. Notice verse 2. The Lord answered me and he said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Write the vision, make it plain. And I think this is not only, of course we see two imperatives here, but it really is one command It's one command to make public God's promises, to publish them, to make everyone see them and have them uh, spread out so that even those who run might be able to read them and so that those who read them might be able to run. So we see that others read, others remember God's promises, even as Habakkuk, even as we are called in the midst of suffering, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of uh, uh, trials to write, to make plain the vision. And I think in particular, we'll look at this in a minute, but that the vision refers uh, to verse four. As we get there, that this vision is a vision of the man who lives by faith. The righteous man who lives by his faith. And what ultimately is the reason? Why do we write the vision? Why is it important in the midst of waiting, in the midst of trials, to make the vision of God plain? To make his revelation known? So that he may run who reads it. So there might be a response to the word of God. So there might be a response to his commands. We read this evening out of uh, the confession, chapter 14. Trembling at the threatenings. But embracing the promises, obeying the commands and clinging in hope to those promises that he has given us in his word. So that we might run to God, run from sin, run from rebellion and from wickedness. And so there might be, even in the midst of temptations, even in the midst of a temptation to doubt, even in the midst of grief and turmoil, that God's promises might be the overarching theme of our life. That God's promises might be made known. And so, do you then recount God's promises during suffering? I think it's very easy for us to come into this mindset that, well, I can teach others. I can, re- I can tell them of what God has done for me when everything is settled. When I've got everything figured out, Then I'll go, then I'll teach, then I will help others. No, God reminds us over and over and over again in Scripture that we are to proclaim His promises when we are in the midst of suffering even, when we are in the midst of grief ourselves. And I think in particular, fathers, husbands, this is a duty for us, with our wives, with our children, that we are called day in and day out to be faithful in family worship, to proclaim the promises of God, to make the vision plain on tablets, that those are children, our wives, that we might run. And so that as a corporate body of believers, even as we gather and sit under the reading of God's word, that we might run and obey God, even in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of suffering. And so do you then encourage others with God's promises when you too are suffering? So we've seen then that God uh, calls us to wait expectantly by cherishing his answer, but he also calls us to recount his promises, and thirdly, to trust in those promises. Verse 3 For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Notice here, there's a promise of a fulfillment that what will, what is being waited for, this expectant vision, the promise that God has given to Habakkuk, the promise that God gives even to us is to wait on my time. Wait for me. Wait for the Lord, because he will fulfill his promise. And of course, as we sit here tonight, the promise for us as we look in hope is the second coming of Christ. That is the great promise that we wait with expectancy now. Habakkuk's promise is one in particular of, he's thinking about a Babylonian army. But again, God is saying, draw your eyes upward. Be reminded that the promise is of a coming Savior. And we'll get there in verse 4. The promise is of one who will redeem you from even sin and death. He will bring you into the kingdom of God. And there will be no, it will not be Babylonian versus Jew. It will not be slave versus free. But it will be those who are of my kingdom versus those who are not. And so we see then the vision is yet for an appointed time. This is a set time that God has set in his providence. It's a preordained, a predestined, a certain time that God determines. And why is it certain? Because he promises it. Because he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. Not because there's something inherent in the promise itself. Not because there's something that makes it uh, magical in its fulfillment, but because God is faithful. It's His faithfulness that makes the promise appointed, sure. Think of Galatians chapter four, that in the fullness of time, Christ came. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. How long had the Israelites waited? How long was Habakkuk himself even waiting for the coming Messiah, waiting for the deliverance of God's people, waiting for this freedom from sin and death and the oppression of it within his own soul? We recognize that the the realities of the gospel That the realities of faith in Christ were there for Habakkuk. He looked forward to Christ. His salvation was in Christ. His hope was in Christ. But Christ did not yet come. The appointed time was not yet. And you think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of years from Genesis 3.15 all the way until Christ comes the first time. He would crush the serpent's head, but they had to wait. And even as we sit here tonight, waiting the appointed time of Christ's second advent, waiting for his second coming, people are reminded that when he says, I'm coming quickly, that so often we begin to question, is this quick? How long, O Lord? Do I have to wait? Bring me home. Bring me home. And yet, God reminds us that in the midst of struggling, even with our own sins, even with the realities of, even with the realities of evil around us, of a world that's pressing in on God's bride, on a world that presses in our own, on our own souls and the temptations that we feel. The vision is yet for its appointed time. But at the end, it will speak. It will not lie. God who promised is faithful. He will surely do it. And if you're dealing with the realities of sin tonight, if you're dealing with the realities and even even mourning and weeping under the realities of your own frailty and sinfulness, even, I think, as Habakkuk was weeping under the realities of the sinfulness of God's people, we were reminded... That God is faithful, and he will free his people from sin, from even death itself. Though it tarries, wait for it. And there's the command. We are called to wait on God. The Lord, Calvin says in commenting on this verse, this is a good, I think, reminder for us. The Lord does not immediately execute what he declares by his mouth. But his purpose is to prove out our patience and the obedience of our faith. God's purpose is to prove our patience and the obedience of our faith. We are called to be patient. We are called to wait on the Lord, to be obedient in faith To God, faith through Jesus Christ, reminded that he has finished, he has accomplished the work of redemption. Therefore, we have hope. Therefore, we believe in the work of God, in the promise of a future hope, a future uh, place with him in heaven, in his kingdom. The Lord does not immediately do, he does not immediately execute what he promises with his mouth. But he's proving our patience. And not only that, but you'll notice that, that Habakkuk reminds us that in the end, the promise will speak. Or the promise will come to pass. It will be completed. It will be accomplished. And it does not lie. There, the, the promise will not lie because God does not lie. God is not slow. We're reminded in 2 Peter chapter 3. God is not slow to fulfill His promises. He is not slow. Wait for it. Again, Revelation 22, I am coming soon, our Lord Jesus said. So does the timing of God's answer, does the timing of his his work, even whether it's in your life, the life of his church, the life of his kingdom, what, what he is doing in redemptive history, does his timing affect your faith in him? Or do you trust him for his due time? Do you trust him because he is faithful? And even in the midst of questions that even like Habakkuk has. Even in the midst of questions and saying, how can this be? How can the realities uh, that I see around me of evil and sin, how can you stand it? We're called to wait. We're called to deal in faith with what we see in front of us. And we're called to fight the good fight of faith. We're not complacent. Far from it. We fight the fight of faith. And we are called then to, uh, to trust in God's promises, to wait. Why? Notice the end of three. Because it will surely come. It will not tarry. It will not delay. And so then ultimately we see that our faith, that, that our waiting is not only expectant waiting, but it is also faithful waiting. Um, I think as we think about that transition of expectant waiting and faithful waiting, the expectant waiting, it waits on God because of who He is, because of, what he has, uh, because of what He shows us of Himself in His Word. The faithful waiting on God is because of what He has done. It's because of the work that He has accomplished through Jesus Christ, because of His salvation. And so we wait not only expectantly because of who he is, but we wait faithfully because of Christ. We reject, notice in verse 4, we reject first, on the one hand, unrighteous pride, but then on the other hand, we embrace Christ's redemption. So even in the midst of the waiting, this, you, you could say this is, the, this is how we wait expectantly. We wait expectantly through faith, in Jesus Christ. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright within him. Notice his soul there. Is referring I think in the immediate context. Of course to the Babylonians. That's the, that's the immediate context of Habakkuk. But again remember. I believe God is drawing Habakkuk's eyes. Upward to the greater, the greater context of. Not just the Babylonian versus the Judea. But the believer versus the unbeliever. The realities of the righteous or the unrighteous versus the righteous. And so here you notice that it's the proud versus the faithful. The proud, his soul is not upright within him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. That verse that came out in Galatians chapter 3 that we read earlier. So the unbeliever's soul is proud. Again, God is addressing Habakkuk's immediate complaint. Notice there in verse 17, shall they therefore empty their net, continuing to slay nations without pity. Notice the connection also between pride and idolatry. This is one throughout scripture that comes again and again, that the proud are idolatrous. So when we deal with pride in our own hearts, we need to deal with it as that, as idolatry. Dealing with pride as I am setting myself up as God. I'm setting my way up as the way. What I'm envisioning in my mind as the only path forward, the only way out. That is idolatry. And we need to be mindful of that, especially in the context of Habakkuk. As we consider the idolatry not only of the Babylonians, but the idolatry of unbelief. The idolatry of rejecting Christ rejecting God's offer of salvation and saying, no, I'll have it my way. So give up your pride. Give up idolatry. Give up self-reliance and fix your mind on heaven where Christ is seated. Because it is he, it is Christ who is our hope of salvation. It is he who gives us that That ability to wait on him, to wait on God's timing. Because your enemy seeks to deceive you. He seeks to whisper in your ear those same words that he whispered to Eve. Did God really say? Is he really faithful? Is he really with you through thick and thin? Will he really do what he says he will do? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. And I will do anything I can to resist that voice. So trust God. Trust in His sovereign mercy to you through Jesus Christ. And you'll notice then, not only is idolatry and pride set, in, uh, set together here in the text, but pride and idolatry are set at direct, in direct contrast to the faith of the righteous man. We embrace then Christ's redemption through faith. Because it is ultimately, we read here, the righteous. It is the just who live by faith. Pride depends on self. Faith depends on God. Pride depends on present realities, on what I can see, touch, taste, feel. And faith depends on things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Calvin says this, Faith strips us of all arrogance. It strips us of all pride, and it leads us naked and needy to God, that we may seek salvation from Him alone. From Him alone. Our confession, and we read it this evening, faith embraces the promises of God for this life and for the one to come. There is the already, and there is the not yet. Yet. There is the reality that it is finished in Christ. That my faith, through, that faith through Christ, faith in Christ is the only my only hope for salvation, my only hope to attain righteousness with God is in Jesus alone, because I have no righteousness in me. My faith is a gift from God, not of works, lest I should boast. Because we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that God should receive the glory not us. And therefore, we see that contrast between pride and faith. That faith strips us and pride builds us up in ourselves. And so we then see where faith is from, it is from God. It is a free gift. J.C. Ryle also reminds us there that in, in this... In in the act of repentance, when we give up, when we are reminded over and over, day in and day out, as we confess our sins to God, we're reminded of this truth, that in repentance, in turning to Him, we give nothing, we contribute nothing, we pay nothing, we perform nothing, because all we have is in Christ. All we have is in Him. He is our hope. He is the one we wait on. He is the one we wait for. And so what is faith's object then? The living son of God. And I think that's exactly where Habakkuk is thinking. That's exactly where God is pointing us here in this text. Is that the just shall live by his faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the righteous man. He is the ultimate hope of the the Christian. He is the ultimate hope of the world. And without Christ, no one shall see the Lord. No one shall see God. And so if you sit here tonight and you do not know Christ, or you have not embraced him as your Savior, cry out to him. Because he is your hope, your only hope. For salvation, from pride, from idolatry, from wickedness, from self-reliance, from a, from a belief that I can do it. It's only my way. And God says, it is only through Christ. It is the way that God has given to us. The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And so, eternal life is possible then only through faith. It's not through nationality. It's not about Babylonian or Jew, Scythian or free, or uh, Scythian or Jew, slave or free. It's all about faith in Christ who has accomplished all. Romans chapter 1 quotes the same text as, we've, as Galatians 3 does. And in Romans chapter 1, we see there that the gospel is the power of salvation because it's there that God's righteousness is revealed. To us as we believe for past salvation and as we believe in Christ for future glory. Hebrews chapter 10, the very end of chapter 10, right before we get into that that verse, actually, which was our call to our meditation, the beginning of of the hall we often call the hall of faith, that it's by faith. That all these people, that, God, that, they, that they were made righteous before God by faith in Jesus Christ. What does the author of Hebrews say just before that? That faith is ultimately what brings us into God's presence. That endurance in the Christian life is possible by faith. And that leads us to assurance. It leads us to the reminder that we are God's people, adopted as sons and daughters that we come to him as a father. We as his children are welcome into his presence. So where is Habakkuk's hope? Turn with me, if you will, to Habakkuk, to the end of chapter 3. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like the deer's feet. He'll make me walk on my high hills. In the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of waiting for the Lord, He is our hope. The one we wait on is the one we trust in. God is our source of strength. He is our rock, our fortress, our only hope in life and in death. So are you waiting in faith on God, your hope of salvation? Are you waiting for the present? Are you waiting for the future? Are you waiting for today and the realities and the struggles, whether they be medical, whether they be financial, whether they be even interpersonal, maybe you're dealing with struggles in your family life, maybe you're dealing with even conflict between siblings, maybe you're dealing even struggles with your own soul, and the the internal battles of depression, or doubt, or anxiety, or fear, or besetting sins that just will not go away. Wait on Him, pray, plead, before the throne of grace, get on your knees as Habakkuk does and say, God, how long? I need the saving power of Christ today in my soul. I need the balm of Gilead, the one who heals and restores and lifts up his people. So whether it's an external or an internal enemy, whether it's the devil whispering in your ear, did God really say? Or whether it's the struggles in your own heart Remember that he is enough. Remember that he is faithful, who surely does it, because the just live by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we then are called to expectantly and to faithfully wait on God because he is faithful and because he has demonstrated in the person and the work of Jesus Christ that he will do all things To bring us to heaven. That he will do it. Because he is faithful. And he fulfills his promises. They are yes and amen in Christ. So wait on God. Cry out to him. Cling to Christ. Trust in his righteousness. Rest. Endure. Fight the good fight of faith. Wherever you are this evening. Fight the good fight of faith. Because he is faithful. He will surely do it.